If you weren't here last week, we started a collection of talks called If Jesus Had a Bio. If Jesus Had a Bio, which is this fun uh, way of asking the question, who is Jesus? What does he care about? What does he do? And what does it have to do with me? Uh, Many of you are on social media, and so you understand that social media is a place that in the bio, you get to tell people about yourself. And for 99% of people, the bio is where you say the most important things about you, right? So like if you went and looked at my bio, it says, I am the husband to Maddie Heron. I am the dad to two beautiful little kids. I love Jesus. I love the Tennessee Titans, and I love Chick-fil-A. I mean, those are the most important things about me right there. There. And so that's how most people treat the bio. They, they post uh, right there, this is who I am, this is what I care about, this is what's important to me. And so at the beginning of our church, I thought, man, what, a, what an incredible opportunity to make our church about Jesus. When people come, we want them to encounter Jesus. When people open up the word here, we want them to learn more about Jesus. And so let's do a series on Jesus. Amazing. You're with me. Amazing. And so last week, uh, we actually looked at the first part of our series, which was Jesus's statement, I am the bread of life. This whole series is centered around these statements in the book of John called the I am statements, uh, where Jesus was telling the world, telling us, telling his disciples who he was and what mattered to him. My hypothesis is if Jesus had a bio, it would be these statements. And so last week, we looked at I am the bread of life, and all my carb people got excited. Today, we're going to go part two, and it's probably the most famous uh, I am statement that there is. It's found in John chapter 8, if you want to go ahead and turn there. John chapter 8, we're going to start in verse 2, and it is the statement, I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. So excited about this series. I hope Uh, that you are too, and I'm just really, really grateful to open up God's word together today. John chapter 8, verse 2. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in the act of adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap. Everybody say trap. In order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me, will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Will you pray with me? God, thank you for these moments. We don't take them for granted. We ask that you would speak to us right now through your word. We didn't come here to have an encounter uh, with a speaker. We came here 
uh, to have an encounter with you. And so I just ask that you would anoint my words, that they would be from you, from your word. And um, when we leave here today, we would know more about you and uh, we would know that we had an encounter with you. We love you. We pray uh, that you would be with the Tennessee Titans today in Cleveland. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. Hey, last week we prayed for them, and uh, they did it. They did it. So we're just going to keep on praying. Um, Have you ever fallen for a trap? Fallen for a trap? Uh, I'm a professional trap faller inner. And so I just thought, we're, we're talking about traps today, just going to spoil it for you. We're talking about traps, and uh, I just thought, you know, I'm good at falling for traps, so I'll just give the people a warning about some traps that I've fallen for in my 28 years of life. And so I've got six traps that, if you're not careful, they'll get you. The first trap is don't make eye contact with the people who run the kiosk at the mall. Okay, don't do it. Uh, five minutes later, you're going to have your shoes off. They're going to be scrubbing your shoes, charging your card, $49.99 for shoe soap. All right? It's a trap. Everybody say it's a trap. It's a trap. Number two, uh, anytime your brain says, I don't need to write that down, I'll remember it. Your brain is trapping you. It's a trap. It's a trap. Number three, uh, when your spouse or your boyfriend or girlfriend uh, uses this word to describe their feelings, when they say, I'm Fine. It's a trap. That's all we have to say. We're just, it's, it's a trap. Uh, number four, uh, dating somebody because of their potential. This is a trap. This is a trap. Uh, so many people, oh, yeah, I know, that, I know that they're not following the Lord right now, or, you know, I, I know that they don't do this or that right now, but, man, they just have so much potential. I just want to warn you today, it's a trap. It's a trap. Number five. Okay, I think I can use one more piece of toilet paper and it'll still flush. You guys are judging me right now so hard. Don't act like you've never said that. Don't act like you've never fallen for that one. All right, uh, number six, moving on. Getting into a political conversation with family members over the holidays. Yep. It is not the Grinch that steals Christmas. It is political conversations at Thanksgiving with your uncle. I'm telling you, uh, it's a trap. Everybody say it's a trap. It's a trap. John chapter 8 is a trap. It's a trap. Now, uh, I've read this passage of scripture so many different times over the, the uh, last eight years of following Jesus. Uh, very familiar with this passage of scripture, but I never really understood what the trap was that was happening in John chapter 8. I mean, the text tells us that they were trying to trap Jesus, but I didn't really understand how they were trying to trap Jesus or why they were trying to trap Jesus. And so just a little context to this passage this morning. Um, At this time in history, the Jews are actually living in the Roman Empire. They're subject to Roman authority. And the Romans have recently passed a law that says the Jews no longer could police their own people. There was a time under the Roman Empire where they actually allowed the Jews to police their own people. But at this time in history, that is not the case. The the Romans are the ones who arrest people. They're the ones who sentence people. They're the ones who set people free. And so uh, if Jesus in this moment, when the Pharisees drag out this woman, if Jesus had said, yes, she's broken the law and, and basically decided what to do with this woman, it would have actually sent Jesus to jail. They would have been able to sentence Jesus to go to Roman prison because of that. 
But on the other hand, if Jesus said, no, we shouldn't do anything about this woman, it was actually going to cause him to lose his credibility. Because to the Jews, the Mosaic law was, was the standard. That was, that was where everything else must fall under. Uh, the, these Jewish people, they looked at the law of Moses as this is God's word. We follow it to a T. And so anybody who didn't agree with that, anybody who didn't follow Moses's law or didn't agree with Moses's law or didn't practice Moses's law, they would not just be seen as someone who, who uh, didn't have credibility. They would be someone that was actually a blasphemer. And you did not follow blasphemers. And so on the one hand, Jesus could choose the woman and if, and if he chose to side with the woman, he would lose all of his followers. He would lose all of the people who were beginning to put their trust in him. But on the other hand, if Jesus said, hey, this woman did break the law of Moses, then he would probably be spending that night in the county jail. And so one, two, three, it was a trap. One, two, three, it's a trap. It's a trap. What I love about Jesus, one of the things I love about Jesus is Jesus was so untrappable. He was so untrappable. Every time people would come to Jesus and say, do this or do that, choose them or choose them, or, or, or go this way or go that way, it seemed like Jesus would pull out this third option out of thin air. It's one of my favorite things about Jesus. These people, they thought Jesus was trapped in between an or statement. Choose her or choose the law. And or statements are almost always traps. This is important because we live in a world right now that is constantly trying to trap us with or statements. Do you side with Democrats or Republicans? Do you side with the unborn or do you side with the poor and the marginalized in your community? Do you side with what the Bible says or do you side with the people that are living in sin in your community? Choose a side. Is it this? Or is it that? And it's the same spirit that was moving in John chapter 8. Choose the truth or choose the woman. And they thought Jesus was going to have to make one of those choices. And just when they thought they had him trapped with an or statement, Jesus shows up with an and. He says, no, 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 I love the woman and I love the law of Moses. He says, I have grace, but I'm also full of truth. He says, I'm not going to throw a stone, but I'm going to tell her to go and sin no more. As followers of Jesus, we've got to add the word and to our vocabularies again. I love the unborn and I love the poor and the marginalized in my community. I love people who are sinning and I love the word of God. I love the party of the donkey and I love the party of the elephant. I just choose to identify with the party of the lamb more than either one of those things. I'm choosing the third option. I'm choosing the Jesus option. I'm choosing the option that's maybe more difficult. It's maybe not as cut and dry all the time, but I'm choosing not to sacrifice my convictions to choose to love people at the same time. It's possible to do both. Turn to your neighbor and say, you can do both. It's an ant. It's an ant. Don't fall for the trap that this world is trying to play on us. That, that when there's a, a line drawn in the sand, I love this quote. I don't know who said it, but, but came across this quote this week with some of our team, that most of the time when you draw a line in the sand, Jesus is not on the side that you're standing on. I love that. I love that. Because Jesus was full of grace and truth. 
We should be as followers of Jesus too. Jesus bends down, he starts writing in the sand, and then he stands up and says this in verse seven, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. What I love about this is these Pharisees, they came to expose this woman. And Jesus, through this line, let anyone who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. What he actually is doing is he's exposing the Pharisees' own need for a savior. Comparing your sin to others is a dangerous game to play. What did your kindergarten teacher say? Don't point your finger at others because there's three pointing back at you. Don't compare your sin to other people's because you've got a lot of it. What is tragic about this situation is that these Pharisees are close enough to touch Jesus, but they are so far away in their self-righteousness that they do not encounter Jesus this day. What a tragedy it would be to be standing next to the light of the world thinking that your light is enough. What a tragedy it would be standing next to the light of the world and thinking, I don't need to have an encounter with him. The Bible says we've all fallen short of the glory of God, that we're all sinners, that, that where one person sins, it actually disqualifies us from being in a relationship with the Holy God. It's why Jesus had to come in the first place, because people who only sin every once in a while still deserve hell. And so comparing our sin to other people's is a fool's game. What we should be doing is going, no, I've got to encounter the one person who came to pay for all sin, including my own. This is what Jesus is trying to get across. And he eventually gets to this I am statement in verse 12, I am the light of the world. And I'm just a really practical person. So I was like, well, what does that actually mean to me as a follower of Jesus? What does light do in a follower of Jesus's life? The first thing that light does is light exposes. The definition of light is this, the natural agent that stimulates sight and exposes things in order to make them visible. The key word that I want to focus on is expose, which is kind of a tricky word because uh, if, if I'm just going to say this statement and I just want you to think about the emotions that come from this statement. Oh, you just got exposed, right? Probably not good. That's like a thing that uh, like millennials and Gen Z say when there's like a, a thing of embarrassment happening or like, like you just had something revealed that you were hiding or, or uh, something bad. Just like there's not a very positive connotation to that. And yet Jesus comes and he says, I am the light of the world. In other words, I am the light of the world and I expose. What is Jesus trying to say? On the one hand, at the beginning of John chapter 8, the Pharisees, they show up, and you could argue that what they're doing is exposing too. They're exposing in the way that we think of exposure. They're, they're coming in there, oh, look at this woman. She just got exposed. She got caught in the act of adultery. She's a sinner. Look at all these bad things in her life. What should we do, Jesus? But Jesus came to expose in a very different kind of way. The Pharisees wanted to expose this woman in order to shame her. But Jesus wanted to expose this woman in order to change her. The Pharisees wanted to come and condemn her. Jesus wanted to set her free. The Pharisees wanted to reveal all the darkness in her life. Jesus wanted to come and reveal all the light in his. It's a very different kind of exposure that's happening here. Jesus, he was the only one in the crowd without sin, which meant that he was the only one in the crowd that was qualified to throw a stone, and he refused. He refused. You know, if the world needed a condemner, I think God would have sent another condemner. But what the world needed was a savior, and so he sent us Jesus. If you're here this morning and maybe you're like, 
I've been in seasons of my life, shame and, you know, think about this woman in, in John chapter 8. I think so easy it's time to read, it, it's easy to read stories in the Bible and just keep the stories at arm's distance. It's like, man, that, you know, stinks for that woman, but if we're dishonest, we're kind of like, well, you shouldn't have committed adultery. Yeah, that would stink to ha have your laundry aired like that. You ever thought about what it would be like to have your laundry aired like that? You ever think what it would be like for the stuff that no one else knows about you? The struggle that you've been going through for that to just be publicly displayed out in the open? I mean, just think, just think about what that kind of exposure would feel like, what it would look like. And Jesus shows up on the scene and dismisses the Pharisees with one sentence. And he turns at the woman, and I, I just picture the woman and, and what she must be feeling in that moment as he looks at her and he says, where are your accusers? And maybe for the first time in her life, the shame just begins to fall off of her. For, for, for the first time in, in her life, she looks at someone who's not there to condemn her, not there to shame her, but somebody who's there to take all of it. As I was studying this week, I, I just felt like I was supposed to ask this question, do you do you hear the sound this morning? The sound of the stones dropping? The, so, the, the, the sounds of accusers walking away from you? Do you hear the sound of the unexpected happening in your life where you should have been condemned, where you should have been charged guilty, instead you were set free? Where, where shame should be running rampant, instead freedom is running rampant because of the grace of Jesus Christ in your life? What's crazy is these Pharisees only knew a little bit about this woman, just a little bit about her, and they were ready to condemn her. Jesus saw this woman in all the sin that wasn't being exposed that day, and yet he could not have loved her more. The same is true about you and me today. Jesus sees your sin clearer than anybody else does, and he loves you more than anyone else could. The same words that Jesus had for this woman are the same words for you today. Where are your accusers? Where are your accusers? What a weight lifted off of our shoulders. What, what, what a crazy response that we would serve a God who goes, you know what? I see the sin. I see the stuff that you're trying to hide. I see the shame. And you know what? I walk up and I walk straight up to you, not with my arms crossed, not with stones in my hand, but with my arms wide open to embrace you and to love you and to let you know that I'm here. And then I'm going to stand up with you and we're going to walk away from this sinful lifestyle together. The order matters. For a long time, I had it off. I was like, I got to get it right with Jesus and then I'll be accepted. That's not the way Jesus works. He comes in and he loves you right in the middle of the mess, right in the middle of the shame, but he doesn't leave you there. He loves you too much for that. He goes, go and sin no more. It, it, it's this moment of grace and forgiveness and then the truth. And then I'm walking, and then I'm walking away from this, from this adultery, and then I'm walking away from blank, whatever the sin is in your life. Jesus came to expose. It's just not the way that the world exposes. Number two, second thing that light does is light guides. Light guides. Uh, my wife, she says that I am the uh, loudest person she knows, and uh, 
She's not referring to the decibel level of my voice or even like, my, like a loud personality. Uh, she's referring to my clumsiness. I'm extremely clumsy. If there is something on the table that should not be spilt, I will spill it. Invite me over. I'll do it for you. Uh, in fact, yesterday, I'm getting ready for, uh, for something I was recording. I had just gotten dressed. I'm wearing like a nice outfit. It was, it was uh, this kind of uh, bay or a lighter colored shirt. And I'm sitting there, hadn't even taken one bite of my taco, trying to study this message, and I spilled the taco all over my shirt. Okay, uh, Kids, they say this about people who dress cool. They say they're saucy. Uh, my wife calls me saucy, but it's because there's actually sauce on the shirt. All right, so this is me. I'm very clumsy, and I'm most clumsy at four o'clock in the morning. Right now, we have a four-month-old who recently moved out of our room. She was sleeping in our room in a little bassinet. She's now in the crib. Praise God. It's amazing. It's going great. But four-month-olds, four they make these weird noises at night. And um, those of you who are parents in the room, you know those noises are terrifying. I mean, like, not only are they just absolutely, they're like little pterodactyl noises. You're like, how is this precious little princess sounding like a pterodactyl? Uh, but you also worry that every noise that they're making is, is going to be bad for them. And so we have this monitor right next to our, uh, our bed that we have turned up. And so right now, there's a good chance I'm waking up a couple times throughout the night. And whenever I wake up at four o'clock in the morning, my body just, it's like red alert. You have not peed in seven hours. That's what my body speaks to me. And so what I like to do is I play this game. Maybe you've played this game before. If you've had to wake up and use the bathroom, it's the game called try not to do anything that prohibits you from falling back to sleep game. And so what you do is like you, you, you like open your eyes as little as possible. You move as slow as possible. Like for some reason in your head, you're like, if I move like any part of my body too much, I'm not going to be able to fall asleep. Do you play this game or am I crazy? Okay. All right. I mean, this is what I look like at four o'clock in the morning. I'm like, you know, no lights are being turned on. There's like some part of me that believes if I put, if I like raise my hand to turn the light on, I just won't be able to go back to sleep. So I'm like, you know, using my shoulder, like, just, this is what I look like at four o'clock in the morning. The amount of things that I have knocked over at four o'clock in the morning is absolutely wild. I mean, it is a wonder that my wife still wants to sleep in the same room as me. I, I have knocked over water bottles, I've broken glasses, I have tripped over pillows and face planted in our bedroom uh, because when there's no light, that's what happens. And I think a lot of times when we try to do this life without the light of the world, we actually look just like I look at four o'clock in the morning. We're bumping into things, we're, we're breaking things, we're breaking people, maybe we're, we're breaking parts of our soul, and we're just so, we're, we're just so like trying to make it through without the light of the world when we could just turn the light on and it would be fine. We could just turn the light on and we could go right where we're supposed to go. We could just turn the light on and, and, and light could do what it's designed to do, which is to guide. That's what Jesus does in our life. He guides us. He, he uh, allows us to navigate the hard seasons of life, the good seasons of life. He's a guide to us. And this would have been relayed to these people who are listening to Jesus talk in John chapter 8. But to fully understand John chapter 8, you have to look at John chapter 7. This is a really interesting uh, passage because there are actually two stories at work in John chapter 8. 
John chapter 7, Jesus is teaching during the middle of this festival called the Feast of Tabernacles, which basically was like this massive celebration that would happen once a year for the Jewish people where there would be feasting, there would be wine, there would be games, there would be teaching, and and people would just be everywhere. I mean, everything stopped for the Feast of Tabernacles. And so Jesus in John chapter 7, he's actually in a courtyard. There's hundreds of people in this courtyard, and he's teaching these people uh, about his truths. He's he's in the middle of a lesson. We get to the end of John chapter 7, and it seems like Jesus gets cut off mid-sentence because it goes from Jesus teaching in this courtyard to the story of the woman caught in the act of adultery. It makes no sense in the flow of it. It's kind of like when you're watching a Netflix show and something's happening and then all of a sudden it does like a flashback. You know what I'm talking about? It's like it pops up the date. It's like 1942 and the music changes. Like that's what's happening in John chapter 8. It does this kind of zoom out to the woman caught in the act of adultery. And then as soon as the conversation between Jesus and the woman caught in the act of adultery happens, it goes right back to the Feast of Tabernacles. And that is actually the scene where Jesus says, I am the light of the world. What's so interesting to me about the context is he's sitting in this courtyard, hundreds of people, and they're surrounded by lights. Surrounded by lights. The teaching would happen at night. And there would be people in this courtyard who had been drinking all day, people who had been partying all day. It wasn't just like the religious scholars who were attending this Feast of Tabernacles. It was people who were following God, people who weren't, people who believed in Jesus, people who weren't. And they're sitting in this dark courtyard, hundreds of people, Jesus is teaching, and they're surrounded by lights. These lights that were about six feet high, four feet wide. They kind of looked like a mini hot air balloon, and there was they would light the inside of them, and it was just putting light around the courtyard so that they could listen and hear what Jesus had to say. And this is the context that Jesus says, I am the light of the world. I find it so interesting, not just the context, but what that implies. They're looking at all these little lights that have to be accumulated just to light up the courtyard. And in that setting, He's looking at people who desperately need a guide and he's saying, I am the light of the world. I am the real light that you need. I am the light that's not just big enough for this courtyard, but it's big enough for your life. I'm the light that's big enough for your relationships. I'm the light that's big enough for your identity. I'm the light that's big enough for for, for your community. I'm the light that's big enough for your fears. I'm the light that's big enough for your hopes. I'm the light that's big enough for your family. I am the light of the world. I'm the light that's big enough for your city. I'm the light that's big enough for your country. I am the light of the world. But we love our little lights, don't we? We love our little lights. Come on, how many of you know your Enneagram number? Don't lie. Yeah. How many of you know everyone else's Enneagram number in here? Because you've been watching the way we act. You know, that, that's always the thing that bothers me so much. Someone will come up to me, they're like, you're an Enneagram blank, aren't you? And I'm like, yeah. You know, like, I wish you couldn't guess it, though. You know, but we love the Enneagram. We love the Myers-Briggs. We, we love social media influencers. We love podcasters. We, we love listening to our favorite preacher or our favorite worship team or whatever. We love to be influenced by little lights. And I'm not saying that those things are bad. In fact, I think in their proper context, they're amazing. But when we choose to turn to little lights to light up our world, it actually is a huge, huge mistake and will end to, it, will, it will lead to death in your life. 
It will lead to problems in your life. There's only one light that we should be putting our hope in, and it is the light of the world. We've got to make sure that we're not putting little lights where the big light should be. Right? Like, I think the irony is like a lot of times, at least what's happened in my life, there's been seasons where, where I've run to a little light to tell me about me. I've run to a little light to reveal more about who I am. And there's been this thing inside my mind that's like, if I could just learn more about who I am, then, then I'll be better. If I could just learn more about this side of my personality, or if I could just learn this life hack, I'll be more productive. I'll be able to be more. The irony is we'll run to all these little lights to reveal things about us and ignore the creator who actually created us. If you want to be the best version of you possible, stand in the light of the world. If you want more hope and purpose and fulfillment in your life, hey, the Enneagram might help with some random things, but you know what will help way more? Being with the light of the world. You know what will help? It'll be great to get some advice on productivity. It'll be great to buy that planner. It'll be great to add that thing to your life, but it will be way better for your job and way better for your family and way better for your soul. We'll be following the light of the world because where the little lights fail, the light of the world won't. Because when the little lights of the world don't have an answer for it, Jesus will. He's here to guide. I am the light of the world. He's here to guide us. He's here to expose things. And thirdly, the light of the world gives hope. One of the lies that darkness is really effective at telling is that darkness will last forever. Really good at telling that. I mean, you turn on the news right now, you get on social media, and it just feels like there is nothing good happening in the world, right? Part of that is because the news gets paid more to you know, share bad stuff. That's, that's a reality. But there's also the reality that we do live in a dark world. There's, there's disease, there's hatred, there's sickness, there's death, there's evil. And sometimes when you're thinking about the darkness so much, you start to believe the lie that it just will always be like this. I've heard so many people reference world events and they're like, well, it's just gonna get worse. It's just gonna get worse, it's just gonna get worse. It's very true, like, like it could get worse, but as a follower of Jesus, I don't think that that should be our perspective. I, I think followers of Jesus should have the most hope in any room that they walk in. Maybe darkness could be real, but we could also focus that light is even more real than the darkness. Yeah, there's bad stuff going on, but man, do you see all that Jesus is doing? Yeah, there, there's stuff that should call, cause heartbreak in our hearts and, and we, should, we should mourn with those who mourn, but, but can we also just take a second to identify all that God is doing? We should be full of hope. But darkness, it lies to us. It says, this is how it's always gonna be. And the same thing can be true of our souls. Maybe you're here today and you've bought into the lie. This is how it's always gonna be. I'm always gonna struggle with this addiction. I'm always gonna struggle with this hidden sin. I'm always, it's always gonna be like this in my marriage. It's always gonna be like this in my relationship with my kids. It's, it's always gonna be like this. It's just not gonna get any better. And Jesus has words for you this morning, the same words that he gave at the end of John chapter eight and verse 12. I am the light of the world. He said that statement to give you hope today that where darkness says it'll last forever, it's just a lie. Reminds me of a city that was known for darkness. 
It's a city called Gotham. Maybe you've heard of it. One of my favorite trilogies is uh, the Batman trilogy with the Dark Knight. And uh, if you've never seen it, that's your homework. You should just go watch that at some point. Um, really good movies. And Gotham is the city that Batman is from. Uh, I love Batman. I grew up watching Batman with my dad. My dad has this statement. He would be like, I'm not saying I'm Batman, but you've never seen me and Batman in the same room. When I was like six, I was like, he's right. So I've always watched Batman with my dad, and I, I, love, uh, I love Batman. I love the Batmobile. I love the Batcave. I love his butler with the cool accent, uh, Alfred. Love Alfred. But my favorite part about Batman, even from a little kid, was, was the bat signal. Do you know what I'm talking about? It's like this massive spotlight that they would shine up in the sky, and it was in the shape of a bat. And basically, the bat signal did two things. Number one, it was a sign to Batman, hey, you're needed, right? It was the police in Gotham, this super dark city. They would, they would shine it out, hey, uh, you're needed, Batman. And then number two is it was a sign that the, the bad guys would see, the villains would see, and, and it would kind of put them on red alert, oh, man, Batman is out here. It was, it was like this, this notice that was served to the city that Batman is coming. And as I'm reading John chapter 8, verse 12, I couldn't help but think, about the bat signal and how in John chapter 8 verse 12, this was the signal that was putting darkness on notice that Jesus was coming. John chapter 8 verse 12, I am the light of the world. John 1 5, the light shines in the darkness and darkness has not overcome it. John 9 25, this thing I know where I was blind, I now see. Psalms 27 1, the Lord is my light and he is my salvation. Whom shall I fear? It makes me think of the time when the, dark, when, when the world went dark, when Jesus was buried in a tomb and people were probably walking around going, man, it's really dark out here. Man, there's a lot of stuff going on. I can't believe they killed that man named Jesus. I can't believe that the sun hasn't come out for the past three days. Darkness was raining. But on the third day, as, as the stone started to tremble, light began to creep up again. And the light of the world stepped out of the grave and once and for all put the world on notice that darkness does not reign any longer. That the light of the world, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, Jesus Christ, is pushing back the darkness in your life. He's pushing back the darkness in our cities. He's pushing back the darkness because he is the hope of the world. If you need hope today, go to Jesus. If you need something to be exposed in your life, take it to Jesus. If you need a guide this morning, follow Jesus. There is one person that could navigate every struggle of your life, and his name is Jesus Christ. He loved you so much, he was willing to die for you. Luke chapter 8 verse 17 says this, For nothing is concealed that will not be revealed, and nothing is hidden that won't be made known and brought to light. My dad, he's a pastor. And so growing up as a kid, he used to quote this scripture as like a fear tactic with me. He'd be like, Noah, you can either drag it in the light or God's gonna drag it in the light. And I'd be like, my dad talks to God. <laughs> Andy's Batman. <laughs> but that scripture is true. One day, we're gonna to get to the end of our life. For some of us, it's 100 years from now. For others of us, it might be tomorrow, it might be today. And when we get to the end of our life, the stuff that we hid in the dark will be brought to light. 
We have an opportunity today. We can keep it in the dark and we can wait for God to drag it in the light or we can willingly bring it to the light and repent of that sin, repent of that struggle to the Lord. And the Bible says that he's faithful to forgive us when we do that. That when we willingly drag our sin into the light, that's actually what allows Jesus to willingly take on your sin on his own body, on the cross. And so what I'd love to do is I'd love to just end this service with a time of repentance, which is simply asking the Lord to forgive us of the stuff that we've been wrestling with, the sin that's in our life, the mistakes that's in our life, and it's turning from the sin and turning towards Jesus, like the woman caught in the act of adultery did. She turned from the adultery and she turned towards Jesus. So that's what we're gonna do. If you're here and you have some sin that you need to drag into the light, we're just gonna take a couple moments. The band's just gonna play. We're just gonna take a couple moments of silence just to repent of sin this morning.